0: Oh, it's, it's, it's very nice Mike is probably responsible for this, this invitation. Uh, just before I start, i a couple of things um, to say. The first one is that, as you'll see behind me, it's very much part of a collaborative um, exercise. I've been working uh, with both Claire Dwyer, who's uh, <coughs> a social job at, uh, at University of Poland, and uh, he's great work. For speakers for future series, I recommend you get Claire in. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about her work later on. And also Bindi Shah, who's a, a sociologist of religion and youth at Southampton University. It's obviously very much a collective exercise. Um, second thing I'd say is that I get, get told off a lot by my wife for apologising all the time, but here's an apology. Uh, I took over as head of department about nine months ago. So this is very much work that was done not in the last nine months. and uh, I don't know what the etiquette is, but uh, it's on the way to being published. So all of your critical comments will be enormously useful and we'll not have blind bit difference to finished paper but may influence what I do in future. So it'd be great to be some Um let me start by thinking about the relationship between uh, faith and suburbia, and I want to um, start the talk in what for me at least is a very familiar environment, um, which is the N4 motorway, approaching uh, London. Um, as you just pass the exits for Heathrow, your eye will I be caught to the left by a large golden dome, That's a kilometre to the north. Drive on for five minutes further, and just as the elevated section descends into, into Chiswick, you catch sight of another dome, rather close to blue dome, uh, covered in golden stars and topped with a large monumental cross. So, uh, many of you, these will be familiar buildings to seek the borough in Southall, and to give its full name the Cathedral of the Dormition of the Most Holy Mother of God and Holy Royal Martyrs in Chiswick, better known to those of us who live in that bit of West London as the Russian Orthodox Cathedral. There are two prominent examples of what has been over the last 20 years a a spectacular wave of large-scale religious buildings uh, in and around London. Uh, Perhaps the most famous example of those is the the Swam in uh, Mandate just off the North Circular Road as the Wembley Stadium and the IKEA Superstore. Other prominent examples include the Mohammedan Park Mosque in Norfolk, and the Jane Temple at Potter's Bar, that I'll talk a bit more about later on in this this discussion. These buildings, I think, are now very often used as signifiers of a rather familiar story about London as an extraordinarily diverse and multicultural city. What I think, or Productions, just might be the case, I think is less often talked about, is the ways in which these are thought of in terms of their geographical location, particularly their relationship with their suburban locations. If this is mentioned at all, most commentaries and certainly most popular in newspaper commentaries simply point to the incongruity of these kinds of places and their surroundings. So when the Swaminarayan temple was opened in the mid-1990s. The Guardian was talking about Nisden's Taj Mahal, the temple to the gods of NW10, emphasising the extraordinary reality of a Hindu temple built amongst, and I quote, the cut-priced, crinkly tin shopping sheds and grim-grey, pebble pebble-dashed suburban streets. Now, this... Supposed incongruity between the sacred and the suburban can I think also be seen in the response to these same places earlier on in the nineteen thirties, the time of that great expansion of semi-detached London. What we saw in the nineteen thirties was a campaign by the Church of England, by the Catholic Diocese of London, by the Methodist Church to in some senses fight the forces of secularisation. The Anglican Church had a large fundraising initiative in the 1930s called the 45 Churches Fund, a campaign to combat the secularisation of 20th century London to uh, provide for what we described as behind me, huge districts allegedly without a soul. Um, T.S. Eliot, in 1934, as part of that fundraising campaign, um, produced a, it's not his best book, it's not The Wasteland, but produced um, a it, kind of pageant play, a sort of grand, it um, was on in the Sadler's Wells, it's a kind of genre that doesn't exist anymore, large numbers of amateur people performing called The Rock. And The Rock directly addressed the nature of suburban life, and its supposed alienation from organized Christianity. Some quotes from uh, The Rock here. I journeyed to the suburbs, and now I was told we toiled for six days, and on the seventh, we was motor to Hindhead or Maidenhead. The weather is hard, we stay at home and read the papers. So it's not quite this land. <laughs> Other things, things here, this is one of my favourite ones, about, uh, sort of, imagines a kind of post-apocalyptic suburb of God and, uh, and organised religion and the uh, touch of truth has, has departed from. He imagines uh, a land of lobelias and tennis flannels where the rabbit shall burrow and the thorn revisit, visit The nettle shall flourish on the gravel court and the wind shall say, here we decent, godless people, their only monument, the Asphalt Road and a thousand lost golf balls. The Rock repeatedly castigates this new 1930s suburbia as a space beyond faith, of godless people, dispersed on ribbon roads where no man knows their neighbour. And I think Eliot's conflation of modernisation, materialism and secularisation corresponds closely with dominant readings of 20th century suburbia in London and perhaps more generally. This paper is about that supposed incongruity. It uses that as a starting point to think about the complexity of the relationships between religion and suburban space. And rather than simply counterpointing the spectacular and the mundane, the spiritual and the material, what I want to do is to think about the significance of religion in changing suburban geographies. The focus, as indicated already, is on London. That's arguably the first site of mass suburbanisation, a site of unprecedented growth between the mid-19th century and the Second World War, and also, of course, I want to tell you, the site of... Um, Transformation driven by external migration in the post-war period. There are two core lines of argument that run through what I'm going to discuss today. First of these is about the nature of suburbia. Um, Laura Vaughan, um, working at the Bartlett School, writing papers about uh, suburbia, particularly about, and she describes the spatial syntax of suburbia. Talks a lot about the way that suburbia, as she describes it, is under-theorized. It's far from clear what's meant by the term suburb, or whether, as she puts it, that term can be seen to have any meaning at all. She calls for a re-theorisation of the suburban. What I'm trying to do here has some sympathy with that, but I don't think there is a simple theorization of the suburban in the same sense that there's no simple theorization of the urban. <coughs> What I want to do is not to treat suburban space as a simple container or backdrop, nor do I want to work with a a predefined set of assumptions about the nature of the suburban, suburban. Instead, what I want to do is to think about the specificity and intricacy of the relationships between different suburban built environments, religious organizations, and practices. So in a sense, what we're doing is using religion and faith as a way of thinking about suburban environments, thinking about the nature of the suburban condition. Second thing that I want to run through the paper is about the relationships between suburbs, religious belief, and secularism or secularisation. The anxieties that underpinned Eliot's response to the 1930s out of London was part of a wider understanding of suburbia as a key element in the decline of religious attendance and organisation in Britain. The references to golf and to motoring echo wider tropes that cast suburbia as an environment that inculcated more materialistic and privatised lives and a consequential loss of both spiritual belief and communal activity. What we've seen recently in geography and some of the other social sciences is, I think, a shift towards a re-engagement with the sociology of religion. Something that moves apart, moves away from simple kinds of modernisation things that assume that societies will drop away from organised religion. So we've talking about a kind of post-secular, secular society, or post-secular trends in Western societies. What I think this has done within geography has been rather kind of or rather um, kept away from mainstream thought. So there's been thought that's been about the microspaces of religious organisations, about the, the spatial development of particular forms of religious organisation. done relatively little to touch like the kind of big sub-disciplines. So it's the kind of urban geography of religion, maybe the suburban geography of religion. Um, Justin Wilford uh, was written uh, much recently about what he describes as the significance of the secular. What he tries to make us do is to see not the, the secular as a kind of background condition, something that is there in the form of classic modernization theory, but to think about how the secular is constructed as much as the sacred is constructed. And that's the kind of thing I want to be doing in terms of thinking about outer London here. Um, the paper is going to have uh, these sections. First of all, some general thoughts about the relationship between religion and suburban space, mm-hmm. thinking particularly about suburbs and secularisation, thinking about religion and its relationship with what we might describe as the new suburban studies, and then um, this is the college, the Newcastle bit, uh, uh, the compass, we'll talk about diaspora, religion, and suburban space. Then what I want to do is to focus on three specific case studies, on three suburban faith geographies, and think about how those might draw out different kinds of relationship between faith, organisation, religion, and the nature of the the suburbs. Okay, suburbs and secularisation. If for 19th century critics and commentators it was industrial urbanisation that was often described as a geographical process threatening organised religion, I think by the mid-20th century suburbia was becoming regarded as a key site of that process. Classic secularisation theory draws upon both Weber and Durkheim in suggesting that modernisation causes social dislocation, the erosion of traditional forms of authority and ritual, and consequently leads to the decline of religion as a significant feature of public life. In writings about the condition of England in the 19th century, it was the city that was the locus and partial cause of the loss of Christian faith. But by the 20th century, this was increasingly a common response to the suburbs and to suburban life. In the work of Lewis Mumford, mass suburbia represented the anti city where, well, as he put it, connections with all forms of challenge or higher calling were lost to the bland rituals of, of competitive spending, and where life became based on a ritual, bland ritual of competitive, sorry, based on a childish view of the world in which reality was sacrificed to the pleasure principle. Writing in 1909, this kind of um, position was anticipated by the liberal commentator Charles Masterman, he was writing about the ravages seemingly made on organised religion by the open indifference seemingly being built in an abhorrent suburbia of Sunday cyclists, of tennis courts, of Sunday music concerts. In the United States, there was a different inflection to the idea that suburban culture was a corrosive influence on faith. Many sociologists, particularly in the post-war decades, held almost as given that migration into suburbia and exposure to its consumerist culture would inevitably lead to a decline in traditional religion. I think one of the things that's really striking if you look at the the historiography of American suburbs, if you look at Kenneth Chapman's Crackgrass Frontier or Robert Fishman's Bourgeois Utopias or John Palin's The Suburbs, none of those actually spent time at all talking about organised religion. And I think what you see is a kind of narrative about the nature of the suburban that writes religion out out of that, despite the fairly obvious continuing power of religious association in many parts of suburban America. Those American sociologists who did look directly at suburban religion took a rather different line. If you look at Will Herbert's Protestant Catholic (coughs) Jew of 1955, A Sociological Study of Religion in Mid-Century America or William H. White's famous The Organization, that, of 1956, supposedly a sociology of the new American middle classes, what we find there are claims about a hollowing out of religion, a decline not necessarily in attendance, at churches or at synagogues, but in the depth of spiritual belief and in full participation in ritual and liturgy. Writing on the church in suburbia, White identified a move to what he called a more socially useful church, a kind of instrumental church, both among both Protestant and Catholic congregations. It meant that the mission of the church was not necessarily directed towards social problems, but served a social function. White was picking up on those kind of functionalist ideas. It was serving a purpose for this new group. In Britain, the decline in organised Christianity, particularly as expressed in Anglican, Catholic and Methodist churches, has been much more dramatic, with less than one in ten of the British population attending church regularly by the end of the 20th century. For many, the movement to new suburbs in Britain created not so much a hollowing out of organised religion as close to its wholesale abandonment. Writing explicitly on the challenges facing suburban churches, Brown has recently suggested that the transient, anonymous, and unrooted nature of suburban life has facilitated a society with only the thinnest understanding of obligation and duty, and has entrenched social atomization. Now, that group of, that sort of cluster of ideas about the suburban, about it being materialistic, about it being atomistic, and therefore a part of this process of suburbanization, fits with a a more general set of tropes about the nature of suburbs and about the nature of suburban society. It's a view that treats suburbia as monolithic, as monotonous, as the locus of petty lives, of narrow, truncated perspectives. I think what we've seen in recent years is the development of what, taken together, might be described as the new suburban studies. Challenging some of those common stereotypes about the suburbs, an early strand uh, re-evaluated the architectural landscapes of suburbia in Britain. Um, Oliver Davis and Bentley's brilliant polemic *Dun Roman* rescued the suburban semi-detached house from the conversation of history. Um, Roger Silverstone's *Visions of Suburbia* in the late nineties um, shifted away from a kind of simple modernising understanding of suburbia, to also focus on what might be described as suburban modernity. Removed from these standard preconceptions, suburbia gets treated, at least potentially, as a site of creativity, of agency, of social innovation, flexibility and complexity. Now religion very rarely gets an explicit mention in this work. If it does at all, it features sometimes in cultural studies approaches to suburbia, often fixated with what McAllister has described as the narrative inversion of suburban morality, a kind of sense that something dark and hypocritical is going on behind the net curtains, that religion is portrayed as the sort of a sensible exterior set of values that are, are undercut behind and. Half the work in cultural studies you know, simply to make that point in different kinds of ways. Usually, about you know, cinematic representations of the sub- suburbs. However, I think potentially in a shift from thinking about suburban modernisation towards thinking about suburban modernity is a route towards thinking about religion in different sorts of ways. An interesting feature of that new suburban studies has been a re-evaluation of the creative potential of consumer and popular culture, recognising the unexpected richness of everyday activity and the seemingly ordinary. Very, very rarely this analysis has been extended to think about the connections between religion and suburban culture. Ethan Diamond, in some brilliant work about um, Orthodox Jews in Canada, calls into question that standard antimony of belief and consumer culture that runs through much discussion of secularisation. His study shows how, at least in the North American Orthodox Jewish context, religious consumerism, in his words, represented an important way in which suburban commercialism and religious traditionalism fuse into a single idea. Diamonds discusses Um, the development of kosher cuisine restaurants, kosher pizza parlours and boutiques selling orthodox fashions in American and Canadian suburbs in the 80s and 90s. What to him was important was while this might have looked very much like secularisation, the pattern of consumption remained an act of identity, and particularly religious identity. Hyman's model is not a conventional narrative of the swamping of religious identity by material culture, but of adaptation and indeed strengthening of religious communities through the development of a distinctive religious culture. I think we've seen recent work in what might broadly be termed the American tradition of congregational studies in the sociology of religion that has also explored the new suburban context of Christian organisations. Very often what that's tended to focus on are evangelical megachurches, kinds of churches that are seen on the outskirts of many American cities, dependent on a kind of um, edge city technology of cars and car parks and shopping malls to bring together a particular kind of of congregation. Justin Wilford shows in his study of Saddleback in California, um, that the organisational strategies of such megachurches are, as he describes, an active response to the character of contemporary suburbia and exurbia. He argues that these megachurches are more than just spiritual equivalents of suburban shopping malls, pulling car-commuting worshippers into giant churches surrounded by vast parking lots. They also work with the grain of new suburbia in other ways, through, as he describes, describes it, demographically sensitive church services, small groups in homes, parks, coffee shops, and workplaces, and continuously updated outreach programs. Now, such megachurches are, of course, often associated with forms of conservative politics or globalizing evangelical missions, but Wilford argues that these are used. Explicitly to engage the local, what he describes, post-suburban narratives of identity formation, and that they're uh, deeply salient to their targeted local demographics. In the sense, they are coming out of the culture around them. I think the focus on megachurches ignores other sorts of religious response to the suburban condition, and I think that's particularly true for those faiths associated with diasporic movements and cultures. Now, clearly, another of the emphases of what we might describe as the new suburban studies has challenged uncritical assumptions about their cultural homogeneity, homogeneity, particularly in terms of racial and ethnic identity. Um, That dominant image of suburbia as a racially homogenous white space that's a survival generalisation for mid-20th century America and that's mid-20th century um, Britain now does no justice at all to its complex social geographies. While 20th century African-American migration to the northern cities of the States was an influence on white flight from the 1960s onwards there was a significant movement of the black population into suburbia. By 2000, racial and ethnic minorities make up over one quarter of the suburban population of the 100 largest metropolitan areas of the United States, with similar diversities in the suburbs of Canada, Australia, and many British cities. Greater London has a particularly complex geography of ethnicity and religious identity, changing rapidly in the 21st century. The 2001 census showed that the most religiously diverse local authority in the UK was the borough of Harrow, in the million suburbs, closely followed by Brent, Redbridge, Barnet, and Ealing. Nonetheless, I think there is still a kind of residual sense of the suburbs as beyond, somehow beyond multiculturalism, and it retains some power in popular culture, and both in some of the opposition that's been made to the construction of new non-Christian places of worship. In Britain, such opposition has often drawn upon racialised notion of place that juxtapose a multicultural inner city with an imagined white English suburb. Backwards um, over the construction of the, the, um, the mosque in Moorpop that we showed earlier on. Uh, mobilised the I think John E. We wrote about this, of a, a garden city, uh, so this is out of place in the garden city, and instead of been around Norwood, which, uh, North is not very garden, not very, very city, a, you know, politics that regarded this as an alien development. One of the things that I think is, we might pick up on is... Thinking about the relationship between religion and Lee's idea of the ethnobird. For Lee, these are suburbs with significant concentrations of new and second, third ge- generation migrant populations that are much more clearly integrated into transnational <laughs> networks than with their immediate metropolis. Um, what Lee argues uh, is that, that the existence of such places highlights the limitations of older orthodoxies of social geography, particularly those that draw upon a, a kind of simple reading Chicago's school sociology in identifying cities as primary centres for migration and suburbs as secondary sites of cultural assimilation. What I think we see in the work about um, sorry, in, in the work about the ethnoverse, is a sense of suburbs no longer as, in some senses, sub, as no longer simply being uh, adjuncts to to a kind of metropolitan culture. It's thinking about their position in much larger transnational networks. And I think one of the things that that we would want to bring out is the ways in which that is not simply, as, as Lee would put it, in terms of economic or familial context, but also sets these places in transnational networks that are associated with the spiritual, associated with religious identity and religious practices. In London, I guess, the most prominent forms of new suburban religion... Sorry, so I was just going to interject there that um, as part of the, the kind of group the sort of dialogue, between me and Bindi and Claire, uh, one of the things that Claire has been doing has been looking at um, religious suburbanisation in Canada. Uh, she's been looking at the way in particular that um, zoning laws in North America concentrate uh, religious organisations and religious institutions on the outskirts of, of big cities. This is from um, Highway 99 north of Vancouver. And it's a remarkable... Religious landscape, which seems to fit in with that kind of sense that the connections there are no longer ends that are inclusive itself, but no longer part of um, metropolitan geography, but a geography that that stretches out into into other kinds of other kinds of networks. All um, cool. tremendously familiar to all of you here, I'm sure that. In London, I guess the, the most prominent forms of new suburban religion relate to the suburban geography of the South Asian population, reflecting the happening of early post-war reception and employment opportunities, and also, to some extent, the significance of home ownership in of those groups. Um, most notable, but also exceptional, is the case of Southall. Um, it's exceptional... You know, um, because of the sort of the concentrations there, but in some ways it is an unexceptional place, characterised by relatively low density, certainly by inner London standard, Edwardian and floor housing, by several substantial parks. Southall might rightly be identified as the London variant of an Eschnaberg, and it's variously been described as an ethnoscape, as a metropolitan uh, sorry, as an ethnoscape, as metropolitan borderland, and as a an Brasian suburb, or a Asian suburb. Southall has a dense cluster of Hindu, Sikh, and Islamic religious buildings that range from early conversions of redundant Christian churches, industrial premises and social clubs, through more functional purpose-built temples, gurdwaras, and mosques, to the spectacular um, Southall budwaras. Such buildings are powerful expressions of Southall's position in transnational networks. At the opening ceremony of the £17 million Gurdwara, um, it was specifically celebrated that this was the temple second only to the Golden Temple in Amritsar in terms of size and status. By contrast, other new diasporic religious buildings around London are not located within settled, migrant, second-generation, third-generation religious communities, but were a function of the opportunities of the suburban or peri-urban fringe for building new and expansive religious buildings. The Orion Temple in Neasden was refused planning permission in the more affluent suburb of Harrow, before gaining uh, permission at at a vacant industrial site in the suburb suburb of Neasden, as the independent put it. Similarly, the Mohamedy Park Mosque in North Holt occupies a disused canal site warehouse site after it was displaced from its previous premises in a former Jewish youth club in the neighboring suburb of Ealing. Kraus has suggested the post-industrial landscape of the Lee Valley Industrial Park provides a flexible space that is financially affordable and tolerant of noisy worship and is the site for ten different African transnational churches. Significant diasporic religious buildings have also been cited out in the commuter belt of the metropolitan region, the Jain Temple, that I'll discuss later on, and the Bhaktivedanta Manor, a site of Hindu worship and pilgrimage in Hertfordshire. These are places that take advantage of the motorway system to bring together widely spread faith communities, but also, as I'll show, respond in their architecture and landscape design to their semi-rural parkland context in the Greenbelt. To reiterate, to end this section, what I think emerges from these literatures in the new suburban studies and in new studies of diasporic communities and religious affiliation in the suburbs is a requirement to rethink the suburban, and particularly to move away from the simplicities of a kind of Baldera Chicago School of Sociology. Rather than a kind of watertight modernisation model of the interrelations between secularism, urban form, and urbanisation, in which the suburban gets conceived both as the final geographic destination and the final shaping force in a process of assimilation, what these kinds of discussions coming together do is to turn attention towards a more complex geography of suburban space and its relationships with faith, identity, and religious practice. What I want to do in the next part of the paper is to turn to a number of case studies, a number number of examples. And they're taken from different times, they're taken from different fates. But what we're trying to do there is not necessarily to set up, um, if you like, ideal types of the relationship between religion and suburbia, but to think about... Different dimensions and particularly think about different kinds of geography of that relationship. And the, the kind of argument that I'm moving towards is to think about different sorts of overlapping geographies, It's not a singular, simple response to to the suburban. Um, I'm going to start uh, with an Anglican church, which was part of. Um, I'll start with an Anglican church, I'll then talk about the West London. Islamic centre in Ealing, and then finally talk more about the Jane Temple at that potter's Bar. Let's start with um, a church. It's one of the churches that was part of um, the 45 Churches campaign of the 1930s. One of those churches that was a response to supposedly these huge districts without a soul. Um, it happens to be the church that I attained. I'm not sure what's next on rather easy in terms of research, but was part of this, this, this sort of broader, broader movement. I think one of the things, for those of us who are, are kind of urban historians, you know, and particularly people who have written about, about suburbia, is the ways in which these places are missing from a kind of conventional history of the suburbs. Um, the late Rex Wolford very, very nice study of the Interwar Anglican Church in in the London suburbs. And one of the points, kind of rhetorical points, he makes at the, the start of that study is that there were more churches and certainly far more religious buildings built in suburban London during the 1920s and 30s than cinemas. But if you look through the literature, there are... Literally hundreds of articles about cinema design, about material culture, about consumer culture, about the impact of that on suburban culture. And there's a kind of teleology, there's a kind of assumption about the nature of materialism and suburban um, secularisation that, that's going on there that actually writes these sorts of places out of that particular, out of that particular history. This church um, St Thomas's which is in the uh, sort of western end of Ealing I think can be seen as a product of its suburban context in a number of ways Firstly it was a direct physical expression of the changing geography of the city The resources required to build the new church came from The demolition and the subsequent sale of the site for redevelopment of St Thomas's in Portland Square in central London. In 1923, the Bishop of London had proposed that near empty central churches should follow the people and be dismantled brick by brick and rebuilt in the suburbs of London. And this did happen in just a few cases. Um, St Andrew's in Wells Street in the West End was expensively rebuilt to St Andrew's in Kingsbury. Those of you who travel out of London on the N 3, near the Thrickenden rugby ground, um, that was All Hallows, Longmark Street, which did get taken down and stuck on the arterial road going out of of London. In St Thomas's in Hanwell, that didn't happen in quite the same way, but large amounts of the sort of material culture that if you go to the the pulpit and other parts of the... Parts of the church were moved from the central, central city. The material form of the church responded to its suburban setting in other ways. Um, it was designed by Edward North, who was also the architect of suburban churches in Acton, and Isha, as well as Guildford Cathedral. And what the churches are characterised by, as you can see, is a, that sort of soaring white interior but also a red brick exterior that echoed the designs and the materials of the surrounding houses. St. Thomas's was also the focus of considerable creative effort in its interior decoration. One of the underwritten stories of the interwar church building programme is its significance for architecture and the decorative arts in this seemingly um, ordinary suburban church and major sculptural works by Eric Gill and Vernon Hill. And there were other forms of art within the church that made even more direct connection with the suburban middle-class lives of the congregation. One of my favourite pieces in the church is um, this piece, which is a, a, um, a, a mural in the children's chapel, um, which places the Annunciation and the Nativity in a landscape of semi-detached houses and a lot of gardens, hopefully. A sort of miracle taking place within suburbia. The church, I think, then emerges not just as a significant site for creativity in the suburbs, but of creative responses to the new suburban world. The decoration, fittings, furnishings of the church are recognisably of their time, but also of their place. In terms of material and style, and are used to create a sacred space that is distinctively suburban. The new church that was built in Hanwell in 1934 drew upon a longer history that also showed creativity, flexibility, and responsiveness to the suburban context. Like many other suburban churches, St Thomas's began. Oops. Um, St Thomas's began as a mission district planted in an area of new housing. The first services were held in 1907 in a brand new suburban semi detached house. A bay fronted upper room, usually the main bedroom in those houses, became a place of worship with a tiny altar and lectern squeezed in. In 1909, the congregation moved to a rough and ready temporary church, known locally as the Tin Tabernacle. More ambitiously, as the tin cathedral. From the start, St Thomas's had a strong sense of itself as the centre of a parish, and in a sense, what it was, <laughs> what it was trying to do was to create a kind of village-like environment within those new suburban spaces. This traditional parish focus to make. A distinctive, bounded community from the suburban spaces around it was relatively successful in the mid-20th century. In the 21st century, the church obviously survives, but is much less successful. The congregation has declined, and it feels itself under threat from evangelical churches around it that have a very different sense of their relationship with the culture of the suburbs around them and with their kind of, kind of mission. Um, half a mile away from St Thomas's Church, behind the nondescript high street of West Eden, and sandwiched in between 1960s infield local authority housing blocks, is a converted warehouse that serves as the home of the West London Islamic Centre. Um, it doesn't seem at first sight to have too much to do with St Thomas's, but we can see really quite clear parallels in terms of its history. It actually started off as a house mosque in the next row to the bay-fronted um, place that St Thomas's had started nearly 80 years before. And mm-hmm. then this, in a sense, is the kind of tin tabernacle phase in the development of um, the West London Islamic Center. Today, this, this building, originally a delivery warehouse for the post office, has been adapted over four floors to provide male and female prayer rooms and washing facilities, a large hall used for weddings and Friday prayers, office space, um, a bookshop, a gymnasium that provides boxing and aerobics classes. What we might think of is this as a kind of ethno space, as a centre of transnational networks within London. And in some senses, what we see in the West London Islamic Centre is something that looks like older expressions of inner city religion. That it's providing um, collective services. It's providing um, uh, it's providing a kind of what used to be called as an urban gateway to other parts of metropolis, yet set within this this suburban suburban space. I think what we see too is the ways in which. It's also a response to suburbia in other ways. I think suburban culture is seen by many within the community as a driving force for secularization. Those kinds of arguments that we saw within Christian communities in the 1930s are there within the Muslim community at the West London London Centre. And it sees itself as a kind of bulwark against the, the culture around it. I think one of the things that places like this draws draws attention towards is the way that, in a sense, Lee's view of the ethnoburg focusing on ethnic identity can be transplanted to think about religious identity. This, in a sense, has, is no longer an ethnic space. Started originally by people from Pakistani communities, one of the things that's very striking about the West London Islamic Centre is the diversity of the communities and the transnational connections that take place there. So what we see here are linkages to Somalia, to Bosnia, to other kinds of parts of, of the um, Muslim or, the world. What we also see, I think, are plans to develop that further. Um, it's been granted planning permission um, for the construction of a new purpose built mosque in West Eagle, following through that same kind of path that was seen before for St. Thomas's, uh, path from a kind of house based, domestically based church towards more temporary, um, uh, temporary premises, towards a more architecturally significant local landmark. The final case that I want to talk about is the Jane Temple at Potter's Bar, opened in 2005, which I think um, demonstrates a different kind of suburban geography. Um, One of the things that we wanted to describe this as was a kind of edge city um, geography that connects faith and suburbia. Um, the tw- those 20th century commentators on the nature of suburbia um, mobility and transience were key factors eroding sociability and generally and organised religious structures in particular but just like that work that talks about um, suburban megachurches in North America I think we can think about examples like the, the Jane Temple as in part a response as well a response to, as well as um, a reaction to possible secularisation. And what we see here is the way that, just like in Vancouver's Highway to Heaven, Highway 99, that Claire writes about, what we can see is the Jane Temple as a response to the geographies of a commuting community of, of faith. And what it does is pull together the British Jane community through the use of the motorway network. It's, it's in a sense, positioned rather um, strategically between the communities of West London and the communities of um, Peterborough and the East Midlands. The site in Potter's Bar was found after a protracted search for a site. Planning permission was granted initially in 1979, despite the location being in the Greenbelt, because of the commitment to restoring listed buildings, and because of the recognition of the need for a religious center for the UK Jain community. Um, and if you see above, you can see that the, the actual temple itself is part of a much larger community, a much larger kind of assemblage of different sorts of buildings. So uh, an older um, house is used as the office center, there's an assembly building. Um, to be used there. Um, the semi-rural setting uh, offered the Jain community, the Oxford community, the opportunity to build uh, a new temple on so-called Virgin Land, providing the possibility that a temple could become an official pilgrimage site, or a tirif, for the European and global Jain community after a century of worship there. In India, Jain tourists are situated in silent and serene green surroundings. I should add that this is about a kilometre away from the M25, allegedly enabling meditation away from day-to-day life. The Greenbelt landscape, the pastoral landscapes at Cook House, which is the old house on this site, became integral to the realisation of the new temple. The temple is a complex response to the site and to the planning regulations in the falls. And so what you see is a kind of adaptation to planning regulations to a, particular, to a particular kind of situation. Within the garden, there are 52 eucalyptus trees used to represent the 52 villages in western Gujarat from which the majority of the Oshawa community traces its ancestry. The temple itself um, is a spec spectacular recreation of Jain temples in India, made from Indian marble and red sandstone, with pieces carved by craftsmen in India and assembled at the temple site. However, what I think we can see is that this is a kind of negotiation, that the development of the new temple is not simply a kind of building of an authentic space, but is a reaction to that site, works within both the traditions of the English landscape garden and the restrictions of the belt. I think it, you can see it is in some ways responding to the distinctiveness of that image city site. Right, so let me um, just make some uh, concluding comments. There. I think these examples, these kind of examples of, uh, kind of religious faith focused on the domestic, of religious faiths focused on what we might describe as ethnological geographies, and religious faith that responds to age to city sites, are, are far from exhaustive of the geographies of religion in modern London suburbia but I think they do highlight key dimensions of that relationship between faith and suburban spaces. What I think is developing in the 21st century is far removed from the undifferentiated mass society imagined and perhaps feared by some critics. The church-making initiatives of the early 20th century is exemplified by the work of the fortified churches in the who were trying to build a structure of highly localised parishes in suburban London, combining a renewal of faith with an inclusive local association of culture, in short, to build broadly based church-centred communities. What has developed, though, is a much more complex geography of suburban faith, an overlapping mosaic of different units, scales, constituencies and congregations, neither a pure space of places nor a pure space of flows. This is a geography that is hard to map a mixture of some intensively localised faith groups, some more traditional parishes and local mosques and temples, and other extended faith networks, increasingly dependent on car journeys and other forms of faith community, all set within wider networks that reach beyond London. This complicated geography is developed in part through changes in religious identity in outer London, most obviously in the growth of diasporic religions, but also through the growing significance of new forms of Christianity, both inside and outside the established churches, that were broken with traditional models of parish communities. At the same time, I think this geography of faith can also be seen as the result of different responses to the challenges of secularisation. Instead of a sea of unfaith washing over suburban society, what has developed are quite specific responses That draw upon (coughs) distinctive elements of modern civility. What I suggested here is that three such geographies, semi-detached faith, ethnomerg faith, and edge city faith, exist as existing forms that draw out different dimensions of the relationships between faith, space, and abilities. These are intended not as an inclusive model, but as signalling ways of learning from outer London and as a framework for further empirical analysis of suburban faith. These geographies draw attention to the complexities of the relationship between faith, secularisation and space in suburbia. Justin Wilford has justifiably questioned general claims that we are moving into a post-secular age and called for a renewed and critical understanding of the nature of the secular. However, his chosen metaphor... Of archipelagos of faith or archipelagos of religious belief surrounded by seas of secular culture seems too limited. There's a danger that the metaphor revives the older antimonies of the rock, where faith spaces the defensive refuges from the threatening waters of suburban materialism. This analysis of faith in modern London demands different interpretations, with relevance to the study of other suburban places. This is a geography of overlays of different faiths, and indeed different kinds of secularism, and of intermeshing and sometimes interconnecting networks. There are significant lessons here about the geography of religion, but telling me also about the nature of suburban space. It shows that there can be no straightforward homology between suburban spaces and secular materialism, and that religion is an element in a wider account that sees the potential for creativity, flexibility, and innovation in suburban worlds. What I'd also argue is that any study of the suburban needs to reach beyond the straitjacketing assumptions about its nature that are still too often made, towards detailed analysis of its existing complexity. What I argue here. Is that a new understanding of suburbia must reach beyond the study of built form, morphology, and travel flows to include the geographies of organization, the material cultures, practices, beliefs, and feelings. A full theorization of the suburban needs to address not just the way that these take place in suburbia, but to think about how they are both responses to the development of the character of suburbias, but also in turn how they relate. Okay. Thank you.